Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. On today's episode of Rewrite Radio, we'll listen to a conversation between four writers in the Eastern Orthodox religious tradition about the deep poetry and lasting peace that liturgy offers. Scott Carnes, Angela Dahl Carlson, Galen Gilbert, and Cameron Alexander Lawrence reflect on orthodoxy and how it can clear a pathway through the slings and arrows of modern life. Scott Carnes' poems and essays have appeared in many publications, including the Paris Review, The Atlantic, and Image Journal. His newest poetry collection is Idiot Psalms, and he's recently been appointed program director of the MFA program at Seattle Pacific University. Angela Dahl Carlson is a poet, essayist, and fiction writer. She's the author of two books, Nearly Orthodox, on being a modern woman in an ancient tradition, and most recently, Garden in the East, The Spiritual Life of the Body. Galen Gilbert is an assistant professor of English at St. Catherine College and the managing editor of St. Catherine Review. Cameron Alexander Lawrence is a poet whose work has appeared in Asheville Poetry Review, Exit 7, Image Journal, and Rock and Sling. I caught up with Angela to talk about that conversation. Hello. Hey, Angela. It's Lisa. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for joining us today. Where did we catch you? Well, I'm, I'm actually at home. I just got home from confession. I feel pretty good about that. <laughs> I'd say it's, it's, right now it's Lent, so we... All right. Got, got my confession in, so I'm, I'm really good now. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, we've caught you at the perfect moment, obviously. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Great. Um, so we're about to listen to this panel on poetry and liturgy that, um, that you were part of and actually proposed for the 2016 uh, Festival of Faith and Writing. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, how that relationship, how you understand the relationship between poetry and liturgy and how it kind of came into focus for you personally? Well, I think that, um, you know, when I, when I think about poetry in particular, I, I think that it, it seems to me to be a kind of lens. It's a way of looking at the world in a way about, of, uh, of, of speaking about the world and um, using an, an economy of language is, is the way I've heard it, it put before. And it's, it's sort of a beautiful way to put it. And I think that one of the things I love about poetry is that the language used has to be very particular. It has to be very specific. The poet says what he or she is, is trying to say in a way that not only conveys it, but really uh, it, it kind of enters into us as we read it as well. So it has this sort of you know transmission effect. Right. Um, and liturgy strikes me that way as well. I was raised Catholic uh, and became Orthodox um, only maybe five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I was missing when I when I kind of wandered away from Catholicism before I wandered into the Orthodox Church was that liturgy, that that liturgical part. You know, I kind of wandered around in a number of places and the poet part of me really was never satisfied with any places that I visited in between. Um, but I think that what Orthodoxy did was it, it reinvigorated that love of language and that economy of language that in some ways, it's kind of a strange way to think about it that that really the Orthodox liturgy hasn't changed really substantially, except to be shortened, um, really since it was developed. 
and there's something comforting about that to me that it's mm. you know the words that are spoken are the words that have been spoken uh, they have a, an enduring quality to them and I think poetry is like that as well when we look back at really early poetry I mean if you go back you know even into you know if you read poems by Rumi today mm-hmm. they still really resonate they are still they still have that kernel of truth in them and they they the, the transition that's happened over the years, um, the words have, have stuck. Yeah, sure. Is there any one you've discovered lately or any poems that you've been thinking about um, that come to mind that are, are sitting oh boy. with you? To put I'm you on the spot. Think, you know, <laughs> no, actually, I, and I, I have a book that I picked up. I, I think I, I bought it a long time ago, but it's, um, it's Rilke. And mm. it's, ooh, Oh, it's love poems to God. That's okay. what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, what Rilke had um, come into contact with orthodoxy mm-hmm. at one point in his life. And he was just really moved by it. And I think, you know, it's that poet's soul just kind of reached out and it, mm-hmm. it really spoke to him. So he has a collection of poems that this collection kind of, um, well, most of these were written around the time that he was still, he was sort of deep and enamored into orthodoxy but the one that always keeps coming back to me is I love the dark hours of my being hmm. would you mind reading the dark hours of my being can you put your fingers on it is it dog-eared sure yeah it is dog-eared yes I love the dark hours of my being my mind deepens into them there I can find as in old letters the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and understood. Then the knowing comes. I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. So I am sometimes like a tree rustling over a gravesite and making real the dream of the one its living roots embrace, a dream once lost among sorrows and songs. Yeah, don't you love him? I love that. (laughs) He's my my poetry boyfriend. (laughs) Excellent. We'll have to fight over him. Um, okay. He's one of my favorites, too. So. Well, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Anytime. Bye. Bye. And now, going east, following the path of poetry and liturgy at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. So when I first started thinking about putting together a group of Orthodox uh, poets and writers and good thinkers and really smart fellas and such, um, really what I had imagined was just getting them on stage and asking them a lot of questions. And so that's what I hope to do. But what I really want to do is try to find these spaces where poetry and liturgy intersect in a, a very loud and busy and um, distraction-driven world. I think it, these places where we find those two things cross over is, uh, is of vital interest to us, not, not only as writers, but as, as people. And I want to start with an image because I just can't help myself. Um, I love that Chicago is built on a grid. If you're from Chicago or you've been to Chicago, you know that it's actually really easy to get around because you've got your east and west streets, and you have your north and south streets. And then there are those weird cut-through streets, you know, Elston and Milwaukee and such. But there's one street that I like the best, and it's called Grand Avenue. Do you know Grand Avenue? Heck yes, thank you. All right, good. So this isn't going to be lost on everybody. 
So Grand Avenue starts out as an east and west street, and then around Western Avenue, it, began, it becomes a diagonal street. So the, rather than running parallel to streets, it begins to cross them. So uh, in a way, I think that's what we're looking for. We're looking for our Grand Avenue. And, uh, and I thought I would just give you a little idea of what Grand Avenue is for you non-Chicago people from the very trusted source, Wikipedia. Grand Avenue is a major east-west arterial surface street in the city of Chicago and nearby DuPage County. Although it deviates somewhat from Chicago's grid system as it is diagonal west of Western Avenue, Grand Avenue was originally known as Whiskey Point Road. You know, I read that, I thought, that's you. (laughs) Sorry, was that a secret? Uh, It's a muddy American Indian trail leading to the west side of Chicago, but it seemed like a nice image for us today to talk about poetry and liturgy that sort of run parallel for a length, and then at some point there is this cutting over space. So we're going to talk a little bit first about poetry, and then as, as Scott says, we will yammer about liturgy. And then we'll see if we can work our way toward finding those crossover spots and how they make a difference in our work and in our lives. So, um, you know, I told told these guys they should be ready to answer what I think is a horrible question. Um, You know, like, what is poetry? And it was. It is horrible. I know. I I admit that. Totally admit it. Uh, But I thought it'd be good to at least give a definition from another well-trusted source if you um, ever read McSweeney's. They have a, it's Poetry Month, National Poetry Month, and they have a great frequently asked question. The first question was, what is poetry? And they say that poetry is clumps of words that make people feel something, which I, <laughs> I think it kind of covers it, but that's just me. So rather than just, I'll give you guys that, but I think a better, a better question perhaps is, when we talk about poetry, what do we mean? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna hand this to you, Cameron, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have to go first. Yeah. What was the question? <laughs> what, so when we talk about poetry today, especially here on the stage, what, what are we talking about? Uh, well, let's talk about the poetic operation of language, which can happen in fiction or in Uh, memoir or in essays or in drama but must happen in poetry or else we're fooling ourselves about it this text being poetry and the poetic operation of language is I think a degree of opacity stop me if you've heard me say this before but there's a there's a way in which words most often are expected to operate which is purely denotatively a word is a sign for a thing or a name for a thing. And so very often when we're reading much of what we read, the, po- the words themselves are s- obtain a, some, a degree of transparency and we're basically looking through the words to the thing, the words name. Poetry, the poetic operation of language is when the words obtain a degree of opacity and we can't move right through them to a single thing they name. Instead, we're, we're obliged to reflect. 
as one does with things that are opaque. Uh, transparent glass, you see through to the thing out there. Opaque glass, you see something of yourself in that surface. And so the poetic operation of language is language that obliges us to see something of ourselves and to participate in the meaning-making of that text. And that has to happen in anything we're going to call a poem. And it can happen in any other literary text. And the degree to which it happens is the degree to which it's literary. And you're welcome. Ditto. Yeah, I, I like the word density. Um, I, had a, I had a teacher at San Diego State. Run, he runs the MFA there, Jerry Farber. He said, poetry is patterned semantic density. And Christopher Alexander, the architect, thank you, unbelievable, uh, basically applies this to architecture, right? He says, the more meanings that a certain space can have due to its functions, the more poetic it is, the more livable it is. Um, so there's a kind of transparency there um, because we all know what it's like trying to read Finnegan's Wake. Um, but it does show you, as Roman Jacobson would say, yourself and the very medium it's using, right? So it's kind of a fun house of mirrors. Um, Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> for me, one of the things I, I think about what poetry does is it, along with what these guys are saying, is that it reveals what's hidden. And language, for as much as it reveals, it hides even more, um, particularly when it's in the poetic form. And so um, I like to think about what a poem does. And uh, just the other day, I came across this great quote from Jane Hirschfield. She says, Poems surprise out of the thicket of my life a bird that I didn't know was living in it. She says, and from that thick, you, you, she says, you experience this and it, it creates some confusion, some bafflement, and it's almost as if you've been asleep and now you're waking up. She says, out of that thicket of bewilderment suddenly comes a flash of plumage and a song. And for a moment, the world is perfect as it is. <clears throat> so I think there's something I really like about that, but where... I maybe would depart a little bit from that is that I don't know that, for me, the poetic reveals the world as perfect, but rather it reveals the world for what it is and, and all of the hidden possibilities within it. Um, and that might be the world of myself or the exterior world, but it's scaring up that bird that you didn't know was there, um, giving you a chance to see it and, and know it and name it. Yeah, and what asking what poetry does is different. It's related, but it's different, right? Um, and I don't know if we want to go there, but it, it does so many things. I mean, it's a, it's a yeah, yeah, sorry. It's an action, right? Uh, and it, in Greek, it means making. So I like to work with wood. Um, does poetry actually make architectural structures? Maybe that's just getting too loosey-goosey, I don't know, but... Uh, verbal poetry, I think, it does kind of invite an expanded vision of things. Um, it shows that truth is not univocal, right? Um, 
there are many ways of knowing. <laughs> um, it defamiliarizes, it tenderizes. Uh, while Stephen says something like, poetry can eat a man alive. Um, you know, Rilke ends his poem about the Belvedere Apollo with the line, you must change your life. So, good poetry maybe does that. I don't know. But that's getting ahead of ourselves, I think. Take this thing. Take it. Do you have something? What do it do? What? Uh, it'll, it, uh, it focuses one's attention. Yeah, I think that's that's actually a really good segue into this next piece where we're gonna we're gonna do kind of the same thing with liturgy. And I want to kind of hold. I keep wanting to take notes um, because the idea of holding one's attention and that opaque seeing yourself and seeing through. I mean, these are like really good functional pieces here. Um, I want to segue just really briefly then into the idea of liturgy, and uh, and I don't know if anybody else feels this, but it feels to me as though we are moving, as a culture perhaps in this country in particular, more toward a liturgical way of understanding um, worship in some ways. I have a friend who recently used the word liturgical to describe a loaf of bread that she bought. And it wasn't for a liturgy, it wasn't from mass or anything, it was like just delicious. Um, Which is, you know, I looked it up and I kind of think it works in some strange way because it's bread. But, um, but really, when I think of liturgy first and most recently in social media, I think of, of my friend David Dark, who, I don't know if he's here, but if, if you have not heard him speak, wow, that sounds weird, or um, haven't read his work, I hope that you will. He's, I think he's speaking tomorrow and also on Saturday. But he has on Instagram uh, a hashtag he uses, liturgy. And they are these commonplace, you know, everyday things but they hold this sort of deeper meaning. So you look at these pictures and with the hashtag liturgy. Hashtag. I don't know how he does it. Um, but it got me to thinking about that a bit. Um, so what we talked about, what do we, what do we mean when we talk about poetry here today? So I'm going to ask the same thing. When we talk about liturgy here in this discussion, in these parallel streets that are going to cross over what are we talking about? Particularly, I think, as Orthodox Christians, it's important that we make very clear what liturgy means to us. So, I could say a little bit about that. Um, <clears throat> so I think that, um, that one thing that we probably immediately consider when we hear the word liturgy is a church service. And that's, that's certainly true. And in the Orthodox Church, the, the sort of preeminent service out of many, many services, and you know, we're, we're actually still in Lent right now and experiencing lots of these services, um, is the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And um, that, that's, like I said, that's certainly um, a big part of what we do. It's, it's our common worship. It's, you know, liturgy could be defined as the work of the people, and so it's, it's what we do when we get together. We work, um, and the work is bringing ourselves to attention um, to a place of wakefulness so that we can really get in contact with the God who is always with us. There isn't, this, there isn't a moment where God is not present, but there are many, many moments that we are not present to God. And so the liturgy is, is one of those things that we do together 
as a community to bring ourselves to a place of wakefulness. Um, but I, think, I don't think we can stop there because in the Orthodox Church, um, liturgy is a way of life. And maybe that gets to what you're saying, Angela, about the sense that we have in the culture that you know, people are talking more about liturgy in broader terms. But um, the Orthodox way is a way of life. It's, it's not just one service. It's not just a handful of services. It's daily prayer. And if you really want to get hardcore, there's hours of prayer in each day that you can follow in a pattern. <clears throat> there's fasting. There's feasting. Um, it's all one connected thing. So when we say liturgy, it's, it's a much bigger thing that connects to not just the sacrament of the Eucharist, which we partake of every Sunday and sometimes during the week, um, but the sacrament of the world, uh, the world as a gift that God has given us as a means of grace and communion with him. That's, that's what drew me to it. Frankly, I mean, I, I actually was prepared for my journey east by uh, my practice of poetry. It was uh, finding, initially my poems were all pretty anecdotal, like most people's poems, where I would have a, what I thought was a profound experience and then sort of trans, write a transcription of it in hopes that someone else might uh, glimpse something of that uh, profundity. And, and increasingly that became less interesting to me and what became most interesting to me is the way that the way what I experienced when I focused on the page to make a poem the way that I focused on the page to read someone else's poem the way I, uh, poetry taught me to quiet to become still and to attend to what was before me so that when I did find finally find my way to uh, my first Orthodox liturgy, invited by Warren Farha at Eighth Day Books table over here. Uh, yeah, it was it was a homecoming of. It was oh, this is, well, this is what worship can be. Very. It's not surprising to me that absent that experience, so many people have replaced religion with poetry or with some art form or other that that occasions that. Uh, degree of stillness, that degree of attention to the world, that uh, really the liturgy, and and then uh, you know uh, the idea that it's it's the liturgy isn't just a thing you go to, but it's a thing you you ingest and then carry with you into your attitude toward your entire life, and to it's, it's the prayer of the church. Uh, the work of the church, the prayer of the church, and then what you learn to do over time is uh, bring that degree of prayerful attention to the rest of your life. Um, so there's this thing that happens, sorry for jumping here. Um, there's this thing that happens when you're Orthodox where you show up and there's already something going on. There's always something already going on. Um, yeah, you, you're always coming in the middle of something. The way the Sunday morning services work is that there are, there are three services. Um, I won't go into it right now, but so at any point you can show up before the 10 o'clock hour when the liturgy really begins, but there's already prayers happening, there's already liturgy happening. And I, I think what's really lovely about that is that you know, our understanding as Orthodox is that there's a liturgy always going on in heaven. Um, and we 
by stepping into what we call the temple on Sunday mornings, we are participating, we are entering into that liturgy that's always going on. Um, so you're coming in in the middle, but yeah, anyway. I don't know if I can add to that, but um, a couple of things came to mind. Yes, yes, yes. Um, the next thing that came to mind was, you know, poetry like the kitchen is, is one of the only things left um, where people who don't have tons of money can spend time making something. Um, and liturgy can be something where you do that with other people um, and, and learn how to do it together. There aren't many places left either where you can be in a room learning words that you're hearing that are the same words for the most part with very, you know, there's moving parts uh, depending on who the saint is of the week or what season of feasting or fasting it may be. But you're, you're learning almost to breathe together um, with people that you may not otherwise choose to spend time with. Uh, you know, friends, uh, they're very different dynamic with friends as there's a the family, right? It's more like family where you're, you're standing next to people or sitting next to people um, that you may not be able to identify any one other thing you have in common, right? Except that which has the ultimate meaning. Um, and you're committing to that together. So, you know, it is work, it is labor. I mean, ergon, right, is the root there um, in, the, in the original Greek for liturgy. And it, sometimes going to liturgy feels like an urge, feels natural, like my soul needs this, it's being healed by this. Sometimes it's just plain difficult because of the attention that's required. Um, but it's something where you do, whether you feel it or not, get caught up in something that you're not the only source of. Um, and in fact, you know, the particular form in which it happens in the Orthodox Church is, you know, 1,700 years old. So there's a history of this, um, which is also kind of has a depth to it. Um, the only other thing I'd like to do is maybe a tiny bridge with... Um, with poetry, in the sense that liturgy is also a pattern of semantic density. People write commentaries on liturgies, they're called mystagogies, and it's literally unpacking, you know, what a single movement or what a single procession or a single, you know, architectural design means. And there's a list, right? I mean, it means with a, with a proliferation of meaning, uh, to put it um, in, in one way. So it's, a li it's living poetry. I mean, you know, not just in the sense that you're, you're, you're singing hymns that have a poetic kind of theological content to them um, with certain meter and so forth, but you're doing that in tandem with all the other arts. I mean, all the other arts, right? Music, um, visual, pictorial iconography, um, again, architecture. Um, so you're combining them all. And... That's not to say it's always like washing over you every, every time, no, right? Because it, it is a habit. Uh, not a, I wouldn't say technique, it's a, it's a habitus, right? It's a chosen pattern. Um, 
but but there is that kind of synthesis as well, just beyond the beyond the words themselves. Yeah, I think that's. Um, I mean, what I'm kind of hearing from you guys, and I think again, what I wish I was writing down was, um, you know, part of that crossover is you know the unpacking of something that. You know, people can write a commentary about liturgy, and then the rest of us, people more like me, just show up when we show up and, uh, and participate, and we are a part of it. And what I, one of the things I loved, and I, and I honestly cannot remember who wrote it down from where I read it, it was probably Father Alexander Schmemann, um, who talked about liturgy being a place, or it might have been Metropolitan Ware, that we're standing at the center of time when we're in liturgy. So we're in the middle of the past, in the present, in the future. And I think there's some, some good crossover points there with poetry as well. So we can read a poem from the 17th century and be able to reach back into it and reach forward and then stand here at the center. And so do you, do you guys have any... Um, well, I have one example. I have an example. I told them they could read poetry. And we're gonna, so... God. But I, I, but I want to start it with, um, um, this is a poem by Malcolm Geit. He is not an Orthodox Christian, but he's pretty close. He likes scotch. He's, what, he's, he's, he's pretty close. Scott will get him one day. <laughs> but this is called The Annunciation, and I think that it kind of strikes us at this idea of the past and the present and the future and just sort of standing in that middle place and paying attention. We see so little stayed on surfaces. We calculate the outsides of the all things. Preoccupied with our own purposes, we miss the shimmer of the angels' wings. They coruscate around us in their joy. A swirl of wheels and eyes and wings unfurled, they guard the good we purpose to destroy a hidden blaze of glory in God's world. But on this day, a young girl stopped to see with open eyes and heart. She heard the voice, the promise of his glory yet to be, as time stood still for her to make a choice. Gabriel knelt, and not a feather stirred. The word himself was waiting on her word. I know, right? This is um, sounding the seasons. Dude, pick it up. So good. It's especially nice to read through the liturgical year, if, you're, if that's your bag. But, so you guys had some, guys had some stuff. Scott. One thing, that poem, as well as uh, what you were saying a minute ago, Galen, reminded me that another aspect, another corollary, it seems, between, say, liturgical practice worship and uh, the practice of poetry or the study of poetry is is uh, the word inexhaustibility comes to mind uh, because it's true for the most part we're saying the same words in worship every time we have the, the divine liturgy it's also true that there's always something new to, glam to glimpse or to hear or to notice in that, in that, you know, re repetition over over the years. Uh, 
I feel the same way about a great poem. You know, how many times... I don't know that you can exhaust a poem like uh, uh, The Idea of Order at Key West by Wallace Stevens, a great Orthodox poet. <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, and it's one of the other things that, uh, that I think serves those of us who want to know why poetry is important and also why liturgical worship is maybe important, is that the familiarity of the words themselves is, is a starting point. And it's in, it's, in, it's in knowing what to say and knowing, you know, if you're reciting a poem or if you're praying the liturgy with the rest of the people and the in the uh, parish, what you experience is that suddenly a word you've said a thousand times before has a resonance to it you hadn't noticed. And, uh, and it, the word is opened. And we get that taste of the inexhaustible. Um, this is why a denotative practice is never satisfying, and, and a denotative, I suppose, a systematic theology even, is somewhat less than satisfying because the, those, those, the language of, of those practices strike me as wanting to pin it down <laughs> when in fact our hearts want us to open it up and to experience the inexhaustible, which we know to be the truth. The one in whom we live and move is not pinned downable, nor is... Uh, so, so poetry, liturgy, these are ways to get a provisional taste of how expansive the meaning of his presence can be. And in that openness, there's nonetheless a sort of stability you know, the, the church fathers talk about scripture growing with the reader, right? Every time you return to it, every time you return to, you know, to a biblical passage, if a day has passed or 10 years has passed, it does different work on you. And I think that's kind of how liturgy works, not only because it's so saturated with, with biblical, you know, language and, and actual biblical passages, um, but because we change, <laughs> <laughs> right? We are becoming, uh, and God is dynamic, but there's a stability there that, um, that's kind of, you know, a metaphor for that is in, the, is in that experience of returning to it and having it be inexhaustible uh, and fill us up again. Um, yeah. It's, it's probably worth just pointing out that, um, if it isn't apparent already, that liturgy does not exist as an end in itself. I think that sometimes when I hear people talking about liturgy and, and they're getting excited about it, the focus becomes on the actual work of the liturgy instead of the thing that it's meant to do, which is to, well, we've, we've already said it, to bring us to a point of attention and wakefulness, but into communion with God. It's the liturgy as a path. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's not something that we just prize for the sake of itself. just felt like that was maybe worth pointing out. Yeah, and it's, and it's not, right, it's not technique. If, if we define technique as the automatic, you know, um, facilitation of a response from God, right? I mean, he's always there. It's kind of the tenderizing of us 
to be open to that, right? We're not kind of conjuring so that then God kind of has to be there now or something. Um, uh, and that's, you know, the word inspiration gets to that, right? Um, inspiration is not impersonal. Inspiration is breath. Um, one of the definitions, uh, an Italian-Canadian poet, Pierre, um, Pierre de Chico, he says that poetry is not only the skill of not resisting God, but, this, but the uh, inhale of God with his breath returning back out of us to him. Um, so there's, there's this balance of kind of agency and, and I don't want to say passivity, right? Because that's a little not so great. Um, um, but the word there is the same word as passio, compassion, to feel, to, to suffer, literally, to be a patient, right? To have something happen to us as well. And when we're inspired, it's as if it comes from elsewhere. Um, so I think that's, that's uh, kind of harmonizing with what you're saying, I hope. I wonder if I could just read a little poem real quick. Okay. I mean, it's a similar, it's also on the Annunciation. It's called A New and Familiar Place. Deep in every human ear is lodged a holy name. When it is spoken, we hear the gravel, the bells, the creaking stairs, and the rain. A green sprout grows like a tear from Jesse's dry stump. Dreaming of white ice in the womb of the lake, Mary hears, feels within a rushing, thawing breath, the antithesis of death. Then, months later, a bump. In the amniotic night before voice, the fetal forerunner jumps. Do you have an enunciation poem? Well, you know, you know, it does. It's actually, it was just the feast of the Annunciation for us, and also actually in the West as well. We were just a couple days off this time, even five weeks apart on Easter, but Annunciation right together. Can I read my Annunciation? Please do. Annunciation. Deep within the clay, and oh, my people, very deep within the holy earthen compound of our kind arrives of one clear star-illumined evening, a spark igniting once again the tender of our lately banked noetic fire. She burns, but she is not consumed. The dew lights gently suffusing the pure fleece. The wall comes down, and do you feel the pulse? We all become the kindled kindred of a king whose birth thereafter bears to all a bright nativity. I just noticed the typo. <laughs> well, I think we, I think we found Many our benefits purpose to for being here. One's word. Sorry. Do you have something? I could read. Do you, do you have an enunciation poem? I don't, but I can That's read okay. from St. Nikolai. Just as an Please do, yeah. And, um, and actually, can you say a few words about St. Nikolai as well? Why don't you say a few words about him? I, I cannot. You, yeah, you must. I can. um, just, just, just tell so us who he is. Yeah, he was, uh, so, St. Nikolai Velomirovich, for those of you who actually know how to pronounce Russian names, forgive me. Um, but he was actually a, a Serbian saint, 
um, or Serbian bishop who became a saint, and he has this book um, called Prayers by the Lake. And I only recently discovered it, but one of the things that just fascinates me about this book is the um, an immense poetic power that St. Nikolai has. And um, I can't help but think that as a man who was steeped in the language of the liturgy and the liturgies and the prayers of the church, um, that all of that fed into his work as a poet. And so I'll just read just the first one in here because it's, it was enough to blow my hair back. Um, a little bit longer, but um, hopefully you'll find it worth it. Who is that staring at me through all the stars in heaven and all the creatures on earth? Cover your eyes, stars and creatures. Do not look upon my nakedness. Shame torments me enough through my own eyes. What is there for you to see? A tree of life that has been reduced to a thorn on the road that pricks both itself and others. What else except a heavenly flame immersed in mud, a flame that neither gives light nor goes out? Plowman, it is not your plowing that matters, but the Lord who watches. Singers, it is not your singing that matters, but the Lord who listens. Sleepers, it is not your sleeping that matters, but the Lord who wakens. It is not the pools of water in the rocks around the lake that matter, but the lake itself. What is all human time but a wave that moistens the burning sand on the shore and then regrets that it left the lake because it has dried up? O stars and creatures, do not look at me with your eyes, but at the Lord. He alone sees. Look at him and you will see yourselves in your homeland. What do you see when you look at me? A picture of your exile? a mirror of your fleeting transitoriness. O Lord, my beautiful veil embroidered with golden seraphim, drape over my face like a veil over the face of a widow and collect my tears in which the sorrow of all your creatures seethes. O Lord, my beauty, come and visit me, lest I be ashamed of my nakedness, lest the many thirsty glances that are falling upon my return home thirsty. Upon me return home thirsty. All my stars and creatures. Um, I want to leave a, a good portion of time for questions because I think uh, I'm, what I'm hoping we've done is sort of open some avenues of discussion. And um, maybe I hope you've heard some things that you perhaps had not heard before. Um, and then maybe it stirred some stuff up in you. So uh, that being said, uh, I'll go ahead and, and take some questions. Okay. Lisa here. I'm popping in to reiterate the questions that were asked during the Q&A portion of the session. You can't hear them very well on the recording, so I'm just going to repeat them. Question one. I read somewhere that the central purpose of hymn writing is to praise God. Could the same be said about writing poetry? Ooh. I think... I think that I think I want to. Uh, yeah, I think it. That's what all. That's what poetry does. It attends. Uh, it gives un, an un, uncommon degree of attention to the to the beauty of of the create of the creation, including the beauty of the humans 
soul, the beauty of the landscape, the, the beauty of relationships, this, this lushness into which uh, we've fallen uh, is, is yet to be recovered. And I think in some ways attending to it with affection is in speaking to the potential beauty of, of this creation and of its recovery is in a way to praise the creator as well. I trust that's as good as I could get. Yeah, maybe the fun of it is that you, it's trying to do that, you know, possibly, without using the, the word God, maybe, right? <laughs> or something, right? Theology, I mean, theology has to use that word with being fully cognizant that there's no way of actually defining it satisfactorily once and for all. So, so poetry can use that, obviously, but maybe part of the fun is that it speaks of everything that's visible as a way of doing that. Again, the same poet, Pierre de Chico, said that poetry is the act of imminence shouting, or I would say sometimes whispering, the infinite. So it's the finite trying to gesture toward the inexhaustible, something like this. I don't know if I have anything to add to that, but I'm holding the mic just in case. Uh, <laughs> the mic will bring some... Yeah, maybe it has yeah. magic powers. Um, I'm trying to... I have lots of thoughts that these guys are stirring up. It's, it's sort of hard to bring them down into the microphone and give them to you. Um, it may be in a clear way, but I can try. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that... A shot that a thought that sh was shook loose by what these guys are saying is that poetry, at least for the poet, and maybe for some readers, is not just something we do, but it's maybe more of a way of life. Um, because I think to be a poet is to at least try as much as possible to stay awake to the world and um, to yourself and to God. And of course, you know, think about Gerard Manley Hopkins saying that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And, you know, in a lot of ways, um, or a lot of times in our lives, that grandeur is, is hidden from us, I think, not because God is absent, but because we are asleep. Um, you know, you, you talk about poetry and liturgy in an age of distraction. And there are all sorts of things in our lives that lull us to sleep in our souls. Liturgy is one of those things that helps us wake up, and I, I think poetry helps us wake up. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily think about poetry in terms of praising God. I think that does happen maybe more implicitly. I think about poetry more in terms of um, communion, this idea of a sacramental life that is lived not just in the institutional sacraments of the church, but in the sacrament of all of creation that God has given us as a means of communing with himself. Um, none of it exists as an end in itself. It's all lovingly held in existence by him, for him. Um, he, he is, Jesus Christ is the end of our existence and our sustenance now. And so, you know, I, just, I, think, I think about poetry in those terms that it's bringing me to a place of worship in the same way that liturgy does um, 
don't know if that's helpful. Question two. Going back to the analogy of poetry and liturgy as streets that eventually intersect, is it possible that they are actually the same street? Are they the same thing? Yeah, a really simple, simplistic version of that is, is, I'll just speak to a resistance I've had over the years when people have uh, assumed that prayer, say, and poetry are somehow identical. And, and, I, and I've always resisted that notion. And of course, liturgy, of course, is the prayer of the church. It's also, to a large degree, the poetry of the church. But I don't know that, I don't know that I'm still yet comfortable with the notion that uh, poetry, per se, and prayer per se or worship per se are identical. I think, I think on the one hand, poetry still is an art form. Prayer is also spoken of as an art. I guess the similarity there is that you can do one, you can do it not so well or better or better or better. You know, you can, you can, be, you can develop through practice a facility with poetry, you can develop through practice uh, a, a more efficacious prayer life. Um, that's what they seem to have in common. What they don't have in common is I, I'm, I, I think poetry is necessarily a public form. I don't know that prayer is always necessarily a public shared thing. Though your first question, the first part of your question had to do with is liturgy, does liturgy require a community? And I, well, frankly, yes. We don't have a we don't have a Eucharistic service where there's the only person there is the priest. There's always got to be another body, or and ideally more than. So it, it's a communal practice. But I, I still I still am not quite comfortable with the notion that poetry and worship are identical. I I, I don't think they're antithetical. I think they're, they can be cooperative. The third question was more of a comment, and a mic was taken into the audience so everyone could hear it. Well, I was trying to deal with the three, and I agree that they are different because we have three different words to get at three different kinds of things. And I was asking them whether or not what they share in common is the fact that they come out of a kind of deeper shared um, uh, matrix. There is a deeper mosaic that supports the three of them. Anyway, that's what I was trying to do. Yeah, I think that, I think that kind of hits. I'd say, I'd, I'd say, yeah, that's gotta be it. <laughs> yeah. And what is, and what does matrix, what does matrix mean? Like a, right? a source? A, it's a, it's a, well, an originating source. Yeah, womb, right? Oh, yeah, womb. matrix, because it is a mother. Right? Matrix is womb, right? And this is a name that traditionally has been given to the church, but I think you're meaning it in kind of a, a maybe a different way as well. There's that great Virginia Woolf book, uh, A Womb of One's Own, All I Want. <laughs> And, 
And I'll say real quick, too, that the, the, the author of the liturgy in the Orthodox tradition, St. John Chrysostom, has a very powerful homily that he gave where he basically said, do not think you can remain in this building participating in this liturgy and not walk out the door, not have to walk out the door and attend to the liturgy of the neighbor. Right? Um, they are inseparable. So there's a togetherness in that sense, right? Um, so I want to I want to get to the way in the back here. You've had your hand up a long time. The fourth and final question was this: How do you see poetry and liturgy opening up space for lament? Yeah, it's certainly necessary that the church provide a, a space for our own uh, recovery, and and part of our recovery, of course, is. Uh, awareness of our own complicity in the brokenness around us and to limit that, to be sorry for that, to repent of that. That's, the church certainly provide, must provide a space for that. Um, and out of that lamentation, uh, have you ever been to a Friday service in, for Holy Week in the, in the Eastern Church? So that's the lamentation service. And there are three pretty ancient hymns that we, uh, with many verses each that we sing. And they start out heartbreaking. And then there's more heartbreak. And then something about the melody modifies, uh, and even though the words are still words of lamentation, there's, a, there's an there's like the, the, the shadow of joy about how, and it's, it's melodic effect, but it's also the words start to take on not just uh, a quality of loss, but a quality of recovery. So I don't know if you know those hymns, but those, that, that's a big night. And it, and it, and it really, it's where we walk, because we've walked through all the Holy Week and the Thursday service, of course, is reading all the, the crucifixion story, stopping just shy of the resurrection. And then the lamentations. And then late Saturday night, uh, we get our anastasy, our resurrection. But I, I, do th I do think that you're absolutely right, the church must provide an occasion for that, he, that confession, that acceptance of our complicity in the brokenness, and then a, 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 a place for hope, a, a scene from which we hope. Yeah. I just want to add to what Scott said, that um, <clears throat> the Orthodox Church is um, impressively holistic in its uh, treatment of, of things like lamentation and joy throughout the liturgical year in, in all the seasons. And um, the one little thought I wanted to add is just that the liturgies, the prayers, all of these things, they actually give us a language for lamentation. Uh, that's, that's one of the, the things that was different for me coming into orthodoxy out of evangelicalism was these words that have been handed down through the centuries um, as we come together to worship, but also in our prayer books. And how as you give yourself over to these words, they become your own words. So I think that's a pretty interesting thing to consider, too, that 
we don't have to come up with our own words for lamentation, perhaps, or joy. They're, they're there for us, but they can become our own, and they're, and they're imbued with our own um, experiences and um, meanings. You know, I want to say, too, that um, one of the things that is striking to me when I, I came out of a Catholic background, so one thing that I really missed becoming Orthodox was Ash Wednesday. We don't, we don't really do that. But, so I emailed Scott one time because every time I was, I don't know, conflicted, I emailed him and asked him what he thought. And, uh, and he said, well, we don't have Ash Wednesday, but we do have Clean Monday, which was pretty great. You know, this idea that we start into Lent not... Um, just kind of like, okay, things are awful and this is bad. In the Orthodox Church, we don't withhold our alleluias during Lent. And that's really striking to me because we're not, we're actually looking at the, at the same time that we're sort of grabbing onto this lament and this grief that we know is coming, we're also still clinging to the alleluia. We don't sort of deprive ourselves of that. So that's, it's something that's always, um, been a very striking piece to me that we are always, I think as Cameron said, we're always balancing all of these things. We probably have room for one more question. Okay, because I, I don't need a question. I was just going to give you an, another answer. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say that the Clean Monday, I just want to point out that the Clean Monday falls right after Forgiveness Sunday. Okay. So this is what sets up Clean Monday is that Everyone in every parish has said to everyone in every parish, for, forgive me, and has been forgiven. And it's in, that, it's, it's in that condition of having asked forgiveness and having received forgiveness. It's a profoundly when, when it is, joyful yeah. service. I mean, at the end of it, like we're, I mean, it's... Everyone's weeping, but it, it's a good weeping, yeah. I think we do actually have to end. The, this guy is doing this. So um, so I think we actually have to come to an end. I'm, I'm so glad to have seen so many people here, so many awesome questions. We really, truly appreciate your being here today, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your conference. Special thanks to Scott Carnes, Galen Gilbert, and Cameron Alexander. Links to their most recent projects can be found in the description of this episode. Thanks also to Angela Dahl Carlson. You can follow her work on Facebook at Garden in the East. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes Sarah Bass, John Brown, Sadie Berger, Donald Hedinga, Lou Klatt, Scott Jose, Jennifer Holberg, Bob Hudson, Annika Kaptein, Carolyn Meitskins, Deb Reinstra, Sarah Turnage, Debbie Visser, and Jane Zwart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you're especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing.